0: Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother!
1: Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Dead Pundits Society. I'm Adam Proctor, as always. Thanks for joining us. I've got a really great show. Joining me is Vivek Chibber. We're going to talk about the meaning of class and why it's really important in building socialist projects on the left. We're also going to explore the way the left has shifted from class-based projects against exploitation and mass oppression to our modern-day obsession with marginality. But first, we open the show with a discussion of Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy. Vivek, along with Robert Brenner, is the founding editor of that project, so I wanted to get the scoop from him about what that's all about. And uh, that's coming at you from the Jacobin family. You can subscribe online. They've got a website. Look it up. Check it out. I have subscribed. You should too. Before we get into all of that, a quick pitch for my Patreon. A big thank you to all my patrons. I could praise you for hours, but I'm sure you folks don't want to hear that. I really appreciate your support. I couldn't do this without you. Uh, If you haven't supported the show yet and you have the financial means to do so, consider doing doing that. It's uh, patreon.com slash dead pundits that's patreon.com slash dead pundits one word no punctuation we've got three dollar five dollar and eight dollar per month levels so if you can help support the show and cover my overhead costs and enable me to do things like travel and buy new equipment to keep the show improving uh, that'd be great i appreciate it uh, check me out on twitter at dead pundits find me on facebook got a Facebook page. You can search Dead Pundits Society to find that. Also, subscribe to my SoundCloud or uh, check me out on iTunes. I just noticed the other day I have a couple of really great reviews on iTunes. I didn't ask anybody to do that, so hey, I really appreciate you all taking the initiative to do that. But anyway, I'll shut up and we'll get to the interview as soon as possible. Uh, Vivek and I will be railing against the woke neoliberal collective, so I wanted to bring you a quick 45-second clip of Hillary Clinton's commencement speech at Medgar Evers College in Brooklyn. It's a real masterclass on woke neoliberal centrism. So I wanted you to hear it for yourself because it provides an excellent backdrop of the kind of bullshit that Vivek is going to be railing against throughout the interview. Hold your nose, try not to break anything. Ladies and gentlemen, Hillary Clinton eulogizes neoliberal woke centrism. Enjoy. So when you go out into this world awaiting you you know there will be some people who try to undermine you because of who you are, what you believe. They'll say that you're just less valuable. Maybe it's the color of your skin or your background, your gender, your religion, who you love, how you worship. Don't you believe them for a second. Speak out on social media. Make your voices heard every single day. And when they even try to dismiss your lived experiences, maybe they'll call it identity politics, stand up and say your identity is as important and valuable as the identity of anybody else who lives in the United States of America. Welcome to this week's show, everybody. Joining me on the line is Vivek Chibber. He is a professor of sociology at NYU. And for our purposes, he is the editor of the new Catalyst Journal, which is out from Jacobin Magazine. How are you, Vivek? Very good. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for having me. Yeah, very, very pleased to have you on. There are a lot of things in terms of world historic proportions that have just happened in the last week the election of Jeremy Corbyn and so on. So, this is a very uh, timely. Uh, moment to have this conversation about class and capitalism. Give me your quick uh, thirty second hot take of of the Corbyn moment and, and and kind of what that means for us.
0: I think the Corbyn moment is immensely significant um, for people, progressives, and and the left all over the world right now because it two things about it. One is that it comes on the back. Of A series of electoral uh, near victories, the Bernie Sanders campaign in the U.S. and Marilyn Shaw's campaign in France, both of which came out of nowhere, shocked everybody, and both of which embodied a real return to bread and butter issues about power and economic justice. Corbyn was the second reason it's important is that Corbyn's campaign was supposed to have gone down in flames. Uh, this was supposed to have been a rout which not only signaled the continuing um, hegemony of the Tories in England, but also was supposed to trigger the evacuation and the eviction of Corbyn and all of his supporters from labor, bringing back into power the Blairites and their version of neoliberalism. Right, right. And his right, performance right, right. upended not only that, but has also shaken the British political establishment to its core. And just like the Sanders campaign here, it's put the – um goal of some kind of radical, egalitarian and, dare we say, socialist agenda uh, back on the political map, it's an extremely important development, I think.
1: So along those lines, uh, a lot of folks, a lot of commentators following the uh, election results, uh, Paul Mason being the most prominent one, was sort of trumpeting the end of neoliberalism that this this sort of uh, election signaled. Of course, they're talking about the, the third-way ideology, the Blairism, uh, uh, Thatcherism in May, and all those types of things. But do you think that that might be a little bit too optimistic in terms of this Heralding the end of neoliberalism, I, I sort of see neoliberalism, and we're going to talk about this in the episode quite a bit. I sort of see neoliberalism as this sort of structural contradiction that is still very much much with us today in ways that perhaps we'll talk about. Um, but what's your take on that? That uh, Paul Mason's claim there?
0: Well, I think in one respect it's really accurate, which is that the the ideological legitimacy of neoliberalism, even where people don't use the word, but the the notion that this the current political economic order is either desirable or that it's all that's possible or that it should be suffered through that really has collapsed. It's, it's collapsed, collapsed everywhere. Now I think you're right that that in itself doesn't signal the end of it as a project, as a political and economic project, Mm -hmm. because to bring it to an end will require some kind of social force, uh, you know, gathering up the power, gathering up enough leverage to actually put something else in its place. While that is not yet consolidated, that force, we – it's impossible to deny that the conditions for its emergence are now really coming into play. And what that means is for people who uh, would like to see an alternative and who are politically engaged, this is the most important political opening in at least two generations.
1: Absolutely, I like your view. It it it, it uh, blends a sense of optimism, a hard won optimism that is, but also a, a a sense of the the demand upon us uh, in this very crucial moment. Uh, Matt Carp on Twitter, a friend of the show, former guest, uh, Jacobin contributor, sort of uh, argued that this this uh, could potentially signal the beginning of. 100 years of social democracy, that this is the century <laughs> of social democracy. And I, I, I like that. I mean, I think that uh, I think we're really kind of seeing that uh, in a sense. And in getting to your project, catalyst uh, you mentioned in the launch uh, in Brooklyn, which I watched online, that the catalyst project is kind of a, the long view you're taking a long view, theoretical and strategic uh, perspective on this political project that you've outlined. Whereas Jacobin magazine, takes a a more shorter kind of hot take version. Um, So tell us a little bit about the project and uh, how it came about.
0: Well, the the project is uh, an attempt to create a forum, create a space for discuss discussing strategy theory um, among um, what one would have called the left. Uh, I hesitate to use that term because I I think it's been denuded and kind of um, bastardized uh, so much over the past 25 years. But by the left, I mean people who see capitalism as the being at the center of their political struggles. Mm-hmm. It's an attempt to try to create an opening for this because we felt Robert Brenner, my co-editor, and I, we felt that um, there's a there while there are journals that do create some kind of um, forum that do provide a forum for these discussions. Uh, well, the world could use one more. <laughs> so we thought, why why not uh, why not having have us do it? And partnering up with Jacobin seemed to be the best way to do it. Indeed, I don't know if we would have started a journal without our relationship to Jacobin Mm -hmm. because um, its spectacular success over the past five years gives a fledgling new operation like Catalyst a platform and exposure, which otherwise it just would be impossible to attain. And we would have just been kind of wallowing in the the sub-basement of left-wing journals forever and ever. So it's, it's really trying to create a, a scholarly uh, organ in which issues of uh, any concern to socialists, whether they're political, economic, philosophical, historical, will be taken up, but in a, in a way that avoids the kind of jargon and technical language and obscurantism of a lot of academic journals. So I, I describe us as scholarly, but not academic.
1: Yeah, and this, this sort of echoes some of the journals that came up in the 1950s and 60s and that uh, moment of, uh, you know, radicalism. You think about the university's New Left Review and of course the New Left Review itself, which is still around today. Um, uh, right, but, but right. it seems, you know, your, your, uh, journal is a distinctly, uh, uh, sort of I don't know, more of the people, you might say. Uh, now, this is yeah. clearly going to be based in the universities. Is this peer reviewed? I've had some people ask me, you know, is this a peer reviewed project? Is this are you trying to straddle that line between the scholarly yeah. and the political uh, in such in the way that, say, a new left review does?
0: Yeah, it's, we, we do intend to make it peer reviewed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's for, you know, kind of a very mundane reason, which is that uh, our goal is to have Younger radicals, um, many of whom, as you say, just you know it's it, it's just a fact about the world today. Many of them are going to be in universities, and many of them are have to worry about uh, the consequences of where they publish and whether or not it's going to um, enable them to you know get permanent jobs. And it is a requirement these days that having a peer-reviewed article um, uh, you know um, uh, is what you need. For practical reasons. So we will move very quickly to a peer review format. It's, it's going to be peer reviewed in a specific way, though, which is that the people to whom we send these articles are going to be people who we think understand what the project is about and who we respect intellectually uh, and in a uh, scholarly fashion, uh, but also with very much discretion on the part of editors uh, about what to do with their suggestions and comments and uh, how to give feedback to the Writers, so it's it's very much under the direction of the editors, with you know, counsel taken from the peers.
1: Well, that's very exciting. Um, as a, not only as an academic myself, but just as someone who's interested in, in sort of more thoughtful, well-marinated political arguments. Uh, this is a yes. really exciting project. And then, not to take anything away from Jacobin, of course, I'm sure you would agree with this, but sometimes the news cycle moves at such a pace. And having myself and you as well, I'm sure having to meet those types of constraints, it's difficult to let ideas and thoughts marinate and, and, and churn in the way that they might need to in order to, to sort of assess the moment in the right way.
0: Yeah, quite often, Jacobin has to, Jacobin um, articles take as their background conditions certain assumptions certain premises certain commitments to theory uh, and to s- historical interpretations right. and what you should see is the uh, catalyst will be the site where you then interrogate those assumptions those premises those uh, those historical premises uh, those historical assu- uh, no, what's the word uh, historical frameworks so they're very much going to be uh, very closely related to each other and i i think that doing one without the other would be uh, a real mistake. But doing them together gives the the Jacobin family, as it were, uh, a kind of advantage of being able to react immediately to events, but also have deeper analyses of the structural forces and political forces driving the events.
1: That's right. As the kids say uh – Get you a magazine that can do both. I don't know, Vivek, you might not appreciate that, but I think uh, my audience will. So yeah, both the theoretical <laughs> approach and the practical approach, I, I really like that. It's an exciting moment, and uh, I'm really glad that uh, you and uh, your editor, uh, Robert Brenner, are in, in place to be able to do this. So yeah. moving on, you've made some really um, insightful, I think, arguments um, about the left as it has existed, as you say, almost let's let's place mm. it in scare quotes uh, mm. because it has a very, uh, very thin relationship to traditional Marxian, uh, Marxian class analysis. And one of the ways that this has expressed itself has been an obsession with this notion of marginality. And you have a really great critique on that. So maybe uh, walk us through that if you don't mind.
0: Well, um, the – it's been a long and torturous history that's that's brought us to this very this kind of trumpeting of marginality as being what the progressive left uh, should worry about. Th- there's a theoretical justification for it. Now, what what do we mean by marginal? What 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 we mean is anybody uh, who is uh, pushed to the corners of society, uh, people whose rights are not. Um, uh, are not recognized, people whose needs are not recognized, people whose um, social importance is not registered either politically or economically. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a very vague set of criteria. And by that, you can call just about anybody who's not at the top marginal. Uh, so it, it comes to mean very many different things. What it has come to mean over time uh, is groups that are easily overlooked, That's what it's come to mean. Now, there's a very important and I think laudable kind of moral mm, imperative for anybody interested in social justice to make sure that uh, people don't fall through the cracks, that in your political movement, in your vision of justice, uh, it not overlook the needs of of groups that because they're small or because they don't have a lot of power and they don't have a way of making their interests felt, uh, they their particular agenda and their particular uh, liabilities are overlooked. It's important to register that. Right. But it's also the case that it inevitably means that you hold up as your litmus test for whether or not a political project is worthy. You hold up as your litmus test whether or not. It is putting at the top of its agenda, very small, uh, very, very um, uh, isolated groups. And what that ends up meaning is that it becomes unfashionable and sometimes even uh, undesirable in this agenda to attend to the needs of the many. And not only the many, but people who are the core of the system. So that's what it's become. Now, why does it, why does it happen? It's for A couple of reasons. One is... Um, It was given theoretical legitimacy by currents in the 70s and 80s, especially coming out of post-structuralism, which saw oppression and marginality as being, as going together. And that's a fundamental theoretical mistake. Oppression is something that's doled out to large groups of people, no less than it is to marginal groups of people. So to give an example, uh, the working class is oppressed in capitalism, uh, and where there's strong... Uh, uh, strains of patriarchy, women are oppressed in capitalism. And those are two very large groups right. to focus your entire energy. Therefore uh, on uh, equating oppression with marginality is therefore a theoretical mistake. Now, the reason those two were equated was because in post-structuralism, there's a very strong link between them conceptually. And the eighties and nineties, of course, were the decades where this post-structuralist stuff really became, uh, took on a life of its own. But sociologically, the reason I think it really took on, uh, took a life of its own, was because the left became confined to these very small corners of society itself, which was chunks, very small sections of the university. And so they were in these classrooms, they got all this theory telling them that you don't have to worry about what's going on outside, you don't have to worry about fixing big social problems, in fact, focusing on that is a form of marginalizing and uh, undermining the needs of key groups, which are these marginal groups. So it, it gave them a license to turn inward. It gave them a license to just focus on uh, everything except the real levers of power, everything except the forces that actually move society. And what you end up having by the 2010s is a left which is no longer interested in in capitalism, no longer interested in actually mobilizing against the central foundations of power in modern society, but is happy niggling around the edges. And that's why I think calling it a left is, you know, somewhat problematic.
1: Right. So a lot of this turn uh, seems to emanate from the 1950s and 60s political movements that shifted the emphasis from Exploitation to discrimination, and you know uh, uh, the one of the most important pieces of legislation in our era, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, really set forth this agenda in a really crucial way that I think has has led to this uh, theoretical apparatus that we call intersectionality, right? Because what you're looking for is uh, discriminatory practices that that do not uh, provide the the necessary basic fundamental rights of an individual. And therefore that individual can seek uh, – is, is injured and can seek damages based on that type of regime. So how, how much – how much do you think that turn in the 1960s plays into this, this?
0: Well, I want to set intersectionality aside for now. It's a slightly different issue, and it has – the the problems in intersectionality are, are – I would characterize them as, as somewhat differently uh, than, okay. than you did. Sure. But um, what the roots of this turn towards marginality are, um, I, I wouldn't say it's the 50s and 60s right? uh, because – even up until you said the Civil Rights Act legislation right. um, miss. It's there's been a kind of a, a, a how would I call it, a, a kind of a con job that the civil rights scholarship has carried out after the 1980s and 90s mm-hmm. about what the real history of that movement was. And it, it is sort of characterizing it as simply a movement against discrimination. Uh, and therefore quite limited in its goals.
1: Right, right. Now, okay. there's, there's
0: no doubt about the fact that the civil rights movement from uh, from as early as 1945 all the way to 65 takes up the disenfranchisement of African-Americans as its central goal. But a couple of points here. Mm-hmm. It's not just they, – they never, up until 63, 64, they never say it's just about discrimination. It's about um, – Uh, the full enfranchisement of African-Americans. Now, what does that mean? It can mean different things. Uh, These days, that's taken to mean, well, just give them the right to vote and make sure that uh, whatever, if they're qualified for a job, they get the job. That's a discrimination agenda. Mm -hmm. But that's not how they understood it. It was always understood first as jobs and uh, the right to vote, always. Economic and political empowerment, And by the time uh, they have the march on Washington in 63, by that and at least at the very least soon after that, Martin Luther King and the people around him are saying there's no point and even SNCC is saying this, there's no point giving people formal political rights if you don't also give them the resources to use them, which means these rights without economic justice and economic redistribution are going to just remain a dead letter. That's true, I, I think, all the way up until the late 1960s where you find, so when the Black Panther movement comes around, if you look at the demands of the Black Panther Party, the first five demands are all economic. Mm-hmm. It's also true of as mainstream an organization of the uh, – like as now, the National Organization for Women, if you look at their, uh, their list of uh, demands and their, their, their agenda in the late 60s, I think the first four were all economic, so this turn, where you strip political movements for recognition, where you strip them of real a commitment to underlying structural and economic rights as well, that comes later, and I think that comes in really from starting in the late 60s into the 70s that you see it happening, and that's because uh, by that time the actual social Leverage and the social power to be able to fight for the economic changes is starting to dissipate, and so the movements narrow down their goals to what's achievable. And as the foundations, which is poor people and the working class, for these demands dissipates, the movements themselves are taken over by more elite sections, by middle class leaders, by hucksters, by brokers, and they in fact want nothing more than to narrow the agenda down to these tiny little demands because that's a means for their own upward advancement because they get to uh, fill these positions uh, for you know more black faces uh, in, in corporate boards, more black politicians, more women, blah, blah, blah. It becomes therefore what we today call identity politics, whereas earlier it was anti-oppression politics. I think that's a that's I would characterize that as coming a little bit later than you do. And I wouldn't say it's a consequence of fighting against discrimination. It's a consequence of how discrimination is conceptualized, which is in a way that's very friendly towards maintaining the status quo.
1: Right, right. That was very well said. Um, Let me amend my claim. Is it possible then that after the uh, decline of labor and the conditions of thriving that were in place in the 1950s and 60s um, during the 70s, is it possible then that what was left after – uh, the union and working class strength dissipated for various reasons. What was left was the legal anti-discrimination apparatus. And so that in, yeah, a, that- sense, in a sense, as, as you rightly point out, and I, I wholeheartedly endorse that view, um, I don't want anybody, any of my listeners to think otherwise. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, uh, once that working class power was diminished for a variety of reasons that we would need hours to talk about. Uh, the only thing that was left was this very thin, uh, s- somewhat superficial anti-discrimination apparatus that has now, as you rightly point out in the 80s and 90s, become kind of like the whole thing.
0: Right? Well, no, there's one more step, okay. and that is okay. a really important step, which is that it's not just that the anti-discrimination apparatus is what's left standing. It's also that the people um, defending it and the people sustaining it uh, then turn against any attempt to bring up economic and class issues. Uh, yes, so whereas yes. earlier people were saying it's not going to be enough to simply fight discrimination, you also need to have economic justice. Mm-hmm. And whereas earlier they were saying simply fighting for these economic demands without understanding the specific liabilities of African Americans and women, without understanding those specific liabilities, a kind of what today we would call race blind or gender blind agenda is going to fall flat. Instead of saying that they turned it into saying, if you bring up economic issues, you're therefore ignoring race. And if you bring up economic issues, you're therefore ignoring gender. That extra step in my view is what makes it, makes it kind of a mistake to call these things left wing because left has always meant and always should mean not just fulfilling the promise of equality in capitalism, Left has to mean doing something about capitalism. And what's happened with these anti-discrimination movements, that certain kind of and I, I want to emphasize it's a certain kind of identity politics mm-hmm. is that it's basically a politics that's making uh, uh, capitalism safe for race and gender issues.
1: Very interesting. So, Toure T- Reed has a piece in Jacobin from a couple of years ago called Why Liberals Separate Race from Class. And it goes through a lot of that history that you uh, brought up there. It's under my understanding that uh, Reed is going to have a book uh, out from uh, Verso under that same title. So, we look forward to that. Maybe we can talk to him more about that. But I, I like this context. This is really good. I, I really appreciate it because I think it helps to. Uh, historically embed our discussion about marginality. So maybe take up, uh, continue your your discussion of marginality, how it evolved in the aughts and um, and, and how you think maybe we're moving out of that moment today into more principled class-based analysis.
0: The left should never use the term. It's an absurd term because if something is marginal, it really doesn't matter. The the idea that fighting for, for example, uh, rights of uh, uh, LGBTQ groups, or sexuality more generally, or gender, or race, that these are somehow marginal groups is such an insult, and it's so ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It's it's something that's come about after academics took over the left. What we should be saying is that we fight against injustice and oppression of any kind. Now, when you characterize something as unjust and oppressive, it's a whole different cast from characterizing it as marginal. Defending the marginal ends up being rhetorically very, uh, I think, counterproductive. Because on the left, we should be able to say that certain things are of marginal importance. Look, being an activist, being an organizer is all about making decisions, setting priorities, because you can't get everything all at once. Right, right. So you always prioritize where you're going to get the most action, where you can get the most leverage for yourself, where you can actually achieve things for the largest number of people, and where you can make inroads into real forms of injustice. Now, real forms of injustice can sometimes be... Injustice doled out against quite small groups, but it's important to take it on sometimes. Now, that that is important because it's a form of injustice. You're not doing it because they're marginal groups. Otherwise, you're always going to be going around looking for things, tiny little issues that everyone else has ignored, ignoring the fact that some things need to be ignored. <laughs> <laughs> you don't go after anything that nobody has pointed out before. So in my view, the, the first thing to say is that this obsessions with the margins is not only has not only come about as a consequence of defeat, which it has, it's not only come about as a consequence of being sequestered in the tiny little groupules in society, which it is, but the very word, the very, the, the concept itself is one that's politically backward and debilitating. The left has always been about power, interest, justice, injustice, oppression, liberation. These This is our vocabulary, not margin and center
1: and all this crap that comes out of literary theory departments. Right. And you've, you've took that on several years ago in your book, uh, 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 uh gets the, colonial uh, theory, yeah. theory. That's right. Talking about how the left needs to recover these notions of universality, uh, things that affect all people the same. So this is a nice turning point to get to your, your article in the first issue of catalyst called rescuing class from the cultural turn. So tell us what the cultural turn is. Um, the kind of challenge that it, it uh, alleged to pose to uh, Marxian analysis and and what you make of that?
0: Well, the cultural turn is just a fancy way of talking about what the Marxists in the old days used to call idealism. It's basically the notion that ideas and culture make the world at, instead of the world making ideas and culture. Mm-hmm. Now, what how that pertains to class is pretty simple. The socialists have always said that the reason class matters is that it's real and class is what we use as a term to define economic relations between people. And it exercises an effect on them because people's need to reproduce themselves day after day, week after week, that need tends to set the agenda for what they're doing because it's the precondition for being able to do anything else. If you don't get food, if you don't get water, you can't be the artist you want to be. So even though you, your deep desire is a non-material one. You want to be a flute player, you want to be a soccer player, you want to be a musician. Whatever you got you're gonna do, you're gonna have to f- secure the basic needs, the basic means of sustaining yourself. On the flip side, uh, people who control production in capitalism are driven by one and only one motive, which is to make profits, and that's an economic need. So our economic system runs on two groups of people coming together: firms that are driven to make profits. And people who have no choice but to go to work for those firms because that's the only way they can get money to survive. That's the foundation on which modern society turns. And the thing about it is it doesn't need any particular kind of cultural training, any particular kind of ideology, because it's resting on certain fundamental needs that human beings have. All right. So that's what the left used to say. What happened by the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s was people started to wonder, all right, so if you've got these classes – And if workers uh, are treated badly in this system, why don't they come together? Why don't you overthrow the system? And the explanation that was given by a lot of academics was, well, it has to do with how they see the world, their ideas, their culture. In fact, the argument went, depending on how they see the world, it's going to determine whether or not they have, they form a class at all. Now, Over time, this became a a means for saying that Marxists and socialists and the left, in insisting that class has an objective reality based on people's interests, interests which are not created by their their culture but are based on their biological needs, that the whole idea that class can exist, can function based on these interests has to be ditched and we have to realize that everything is a consequence of people's perceptions of the world on their ideas on their their socialization and that was what the cultural turn came to be so at the at the when this whole, this whole thing came to its its final form what we ended up getting was an idea that the whole notion of capitalism being an economic system with its own internal logic its internal motor driven by profits driven by real material needs is a sham in fact it's all culturally constructed it's all ideologically constructed right right so that the re- reason that matters is this if you don't think that capitalism is driven by certain basic foundational drives then there's two consequences that follow on the top end when you're looking capitalists it's possible to say well maybe christian capitalists are different from muslim capitalists because their cultures are different maybe Indian capitalists are going to be really nice to their workers because Indians tend to be nice people. So what socialists used to say, that capital is capital, wherever you find it, that goes out the window because you don't know anything until you know their culture. On the other end, the idea that workers have certain objective interests in common goes out the window because maybe a Muslim worker doesn't see the world the same as a Christian worker. And maybe workers in uh, Nigeria are not going to ever form a class amongst themselves because they don't have the cultural makeup. And furthermore, maybe they'll never do anything in common with, say, British workers because these are two different cultures. You'd lose the foundations on which class alliances, internationalism, class struggle, any of this can be built. So it sounds like an arcane uh, academic debate, but it's not. It's basically a debate over whether people do have objective interests, whether capitalism actually does have an internal motor that's driven independently of the culture that it's in. Uh, And if it does, how do you explain then uh, the the fact that culture is everywhere? Do you have to figure out if these things are real, how to account for a culture in a way that doesn't dismiss it? So what I try to do in this article is defend the idea uh, and try to show that the idea that capitalism is driven on these very objective grounds is not an outlandish idea. And show that recognizing that doesn't mean you you ha, you can you, uh, are uh, compelled to dismiss culture. In fact, it's the best way to account for why culture changes the way it does.
1: One of the most prominent criticisms against Jacobin, and, and it's one that I'm sure your journal will receive as well, is that, uh, you know, you brochure only want to talk about class. You don't want to talk about race. You don't want to talk about gender. You don't want to talk about culture. And so, tell us explicitly. Uh, give us a good snippet. Uh, you know, a nice repeatable uh, <laughs> response to these kinds of slanders and slurs. Uh, tell us what what your conception of class looks like. Then,
0: well, it's very simple. Uh, there's there's two issues. You're running together two different issues. One is what's our conception of class, and the other is. If you say that that the class organizing has to be the the and class struggle is at the center of your politics, does that um, in some way impugn the importance of gender and race? Yeah. This is a con job that that these the uh, the so-called left of the past twenty years has carried out. A couple of things. Um, what's the historical basis for this accusation? Uh, I would submit it's about zero. When in the twentieth century, when. Struggles around racial oppression were taken up. Who was leading them in the 1920s and the 1930s and the 40s? Go ahead. Just take a look. It's all it's always communists and socialists. They were the ones who put it on the public agenda. When the struggle against imperialism is taken up, who's leading it? It's always these people. It's always the left. There, there's no historical basis on which to make this accusation that a commitment to class politics leads to in, in some way a sidelining of these other issues. That's point number one. Point number two, there's a reason why Marxists and socialists have insisted uh, that the two go together, which is that if you re- if you believe, as I think most intelligent people do, that racial oppression is always rooted in actual material advantages that white people have over black people and actual material deprivation of black people, that gender oppression is rooted in an actual material dependence of women on men, then you simply cannot attack these forms of oppression unless you also fight for more economic resources, more jobs, more housing, free childcare, all these things for these oppressed groups. And there's a simple challenge one can make to anybody who says that focusing on economic issues uh, relegates race to the sidelines. How do you plan How do you propose to fight the actual economic condition or the actual uh, uh, domination of African-Americans in this country without taking up these economic issues? And if you do propose to take up these economic issues, who's going to fight for them? The rich? Who's going to fight for them? Upwardly mobile students and professionals? It's going to be people who are poor, who have an interest in it. So it's a con job that – Focusing on these economic issues and class interests obscures in some way or relegates or sidelines race and gender. What our view is, is, the, is that it's the only way you can fight on issues of race and gender. By, In other words, by focusing on the needs of poor African-Americans, poor women, not the upwardly mobile professionals who have been setting the agenda over the past 40 years.
1: Very well said. So it seems like one of the At the heart of this disagreement or this misunderstanding is a a dual sided nature of class. Now, on the one hand, uh, you yourself as a sociologist will be all too familiar with uh, one of them, which is something like class as identity. Now, that can be traced and and researched in several different ways. You can look at income brackets. uh, You can look at uh, various uh, things. You know, do you shop at Walmart or do you shop at Saks? Uh, Fifth Avenue, for example, um, you know, so that's one way to look at class as identity, as a as a marker of you know personal interests or uh, income. The other way is is that what your your article seems to be talking about, which is something that something like class as process. Right, so when by process, what I mean is in terms of how it—it's it, a system of relations within this broader well, structure.
0: I, I would just call about. it cl- class as a certain kind of social relation. Yeah. yeah,
1: right. That's good. So maybe delineate between those two and how. I mean, it's my suggestion. You may disagree. My suggestion that jumping between those two conceptions too seamlessly without being explicit about that causes problems of a sort, both um, both amongst among the left and, uh, you know, defending ourselves from slander from outside the left.
0: Well, it's not complicated at all. It's just been made complicated by professors. Uh, (laughs) It's It's very simple. That class is something that exists independently of people's social identities. And the reason for that is it it doesn't matter if you think of yourself as a worker, a Catholic, um, a, a Bulls fan Uh, as an old dude, whatever you want to call yourself, you're going to go to work every day. If you go to work every day, you are reproducing your class relation. Now, that means we look at class fundamentally as something that people do every day. What they're doing is they're either working for somebody or they're employing somebody or they have their own business. It's what you do. Now, there's a separate question of when you're engaged in this practice, Are you going to develop a kind of identification with other people who are doing the same thing as you? That's a question of class identity. Now, organizing is all about moving from the first to the second. You find people who share certain characteristics, share certain dilemmas, certain uh, uh, vulnerabilities. And you say to them, hey, you're only going to improve your situation if you band together with these other people who have the same problems as you do. In the, the in the event that people do come together and start uh, identifying with each other, that's called class identification, class identity, class consciousness, whatever you want to make it. No, uh, mm, there's there's no, in my view, um, productive way to say that class identification is the a useful way of actually locating somebody's. Uh, class position because what that means basically is depending on which TV shows you like, depending on which school you go to, depending on what kind of clothes you wear, we're going to tell you what class you're in. Okay. That's nice in an academic seminar, but can you imagine, imagine if that becomes the foundation for somebody's politics? So I don't think it's very complicated. Uh, The, the, the tough thing is knowing, um, uh, how to rebut the very highfalutin and sophisticated sounding arguments that try to flip the relationship from one where it's people's class position that's generating their view of the world, to insisting that it's your view of the world that determines which class you're in. It, it can be very intimidating arguments, and you know you get a lot of uh, s- s- sexy points if you make it because it sounds all you, you know uh, avant garde and, sure, and, right. sure and new right. and all that, but. Um, the uh, it, it's led absolutely nowhere because it has nothing to do with reality
1: yeah you can it's, uh, you can be one of those guys that wears uh elbow patches on his jackets and smokes a pipe and you know No, I'm a worker. Seems very wise about that. but So it seems to me that a lot of these uh, frustrations and confusions come from uh, historically low levels of of class struggle, of organic class struggle. Um, It's easy to obsess on social media about cultural difference when there is not a viable political or electoral campaign out there. So it's been really –
0: It's pretty simple. It, It comes from having people take over left theorizing who have no interest in actually understanding the world. And, and that's middle class people, uh, students, professors, um, NGOs, nonprofits. For them, uh, what, what they write and what they say is driven much more by a need for social acceptance or professional advancement, not for actually being correct. Whereas when you have it in people who are in political organizations who are doing the theorizing, I mean, they oftentimes screw up. They oftentimes get it wrong. They oftentimes engage in petty squabbles, but there is a real um, what's the word incentive to get things right? Because in many situations, if you don't, you're going to get your ass kicked. Right,
1: right. Your back's against the wall. You tends yeah. to sharpen one's mind, uh, you know, when your livelihood is at risk, doesn't it?
0: I mean, if you really think that class is all about what people wear and you use that as an organizing strategy, then you basically it means that you go into a you know a factory. And if the managers are wearing the right clothes, you go and tell them, hey, join our union. Well, good luck with that.
1: or uh, because Justin Trudeau, you know, likes to dress down on Thursdays or whatever, you know, he's one of us, right? Yeah. Yeah. So taking a a slight different turn, I'm, and this is a little bit of a, I'm I'm springing this upon you. So you mentioned that catalyst is interested in taking up more fundamental theoretical orientations, uh, which, which make either critique or diverge from the sort of um, common sense that, that folks uh, use on the left. And I like the way you characterize that in terms of the relationship between Jacobin and Catalyst. So what are, mm. just, you know, lay on me a few things, large, big picture, macro level uh, types of concerns uh, that either you are thinking about or you would like to see Catalyst take up in terms of orientation, uh, theoretical, strategic, or otherwise on the left. Sure, okay.
0: So one, in the first two issues, um, one is, one is, Already is and is going to be. Um, how does class work? What is it about exactly? So, in the very first issue, I have this article on, you know, proposing that we can in fact continue to work with a, you know, materialist idea of what class is. In issue two, uh, Berkeley professor Dylan Riley uh, takes on a very prominent contender uh, 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 for theories of class against the traditional left wing one, which is a theory that promoted by Pierre Bourdieu. Uh, French sociologist. And Riley, you know, uh, criticizes the Borgiudian theory, uh, showing that it it, even on its own terms, it's not very successful. And it tries to, again, defend a kind of a more traditional conception of how class works. Now, this is part and parcel of one agenda, which is going reviving and uh, trying to show That even today in this world, 150 years after Marx wrote his stuff, uh, the foundations of what anti-capitalist politics are, are going to rest on very many of the same concepts that were promulgated 150 years ago. So that's going to be one of our agendas. Capital, capitalism, class, showing, interrogating what these mean and showing uh, that they're defensible categories. Another big ticket item that we have is uh, strategic discussions about what the left actually ought to be doing. Now, in issue three and issue four, we're going to therefore have a debate on the European Union. What should a left strategy towards the European Union be? Should it be exit? A lot of people say it should be, especially after the debacle in Greece. Or should it be staying in and trying to push the union in a left-wing direction, which a lot of people insist is the only viable project. And they, they say there's some, I think, not very good arguments for that, but there's actually some good ones out there too. And I think what the left needs to do is very carefully and very clearly debate that issue. A third agenda. That's a big item for us that we're going to be doing is, um, outside of the EU, uh, and whether or not to stay in the EU, what does a left wing reformist program look like? So we're going to take the issue of reforms very seriously. Right. Uh, so universal income grants, uh, government as employer of the last resort, what to do with finance, capital controls, municipalizing the banks, uh, those are uh, that's another big issue. Another uh, agenda we're following is what are the normative moral foundations of socialism. So in issue three, we are pretty sure, we're hopeful, unless something uh, falls through, we're going to have an article on uh, socialism and freedom. So what is the role the place of freedom in the socialist agenda? And soon after that, we're going to have a series of other articles, again on the ethical and moral foundations of what. Uh, what socialists strive for. Um, then, as an ongoing project, we're going to have engagements with what we call other radicalisms, which have played a very important role in pushing capitalism and uh, class struggle off the table. So in the very first issue, Nivedita Majumdar had an article on how postcolonial theory deals with gender and resistance. And what she tra- what she shows in that is the canonical text of post-colonial theory not only do do they not take gender seriously, even though the texts are about gender, right. but they right. also don't take resistance seriously, even though they're about resistance. they are going to have an article. We already I, I mentioned the one on Bourdieu. We're going to have several articles on uh, current trends in uh, cultural and social theory. Uh, so these are all the kind of the, these are things that Jacobin, you know, it it kind of mm, tangentially deals with them. But it, it can't take them head on because of the nature of the publication. They're essential to what any left wing project. But there are also um, something that they, it needs a journal with a focus that's slightly different from the focus that that Jacobin has had.
1: Right, all that stuff is really great. It's exciting. It takes me back to the nineteen sixties when you had really lively debates uh, about you know things like Euro socialism and, and taking those arguments very seriously. And it seems like yeah. as, <laughs> since the nineteen eighties and nineties, the left uh, has really devolved into this sort of intra sect. Uh, kind of, you know, debate. It always comes back to like reform or revolution. Which one is it going to be, folks? You know, and it's like these really ridiculous kind of uh, framing. Yeah. Uh so because it's-, it's, it's all posturing. It's all posturing. And now, now that real
0: possibilities are making themselves apparent before us, real possibilities for change. You've really got to take analysis much more seriously because a lot's going to be at stake.
1: That's right. So let's close with this. There are a lot of uh, young people in particular who are flocking to organizations like the Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed in and, and my show is very friendly to the DSA, but has also been critical on a couple key points. And, and, and that's to say it's an open tent organization. So there are a lot of folks who happen to agree with my analysis um, as well. And so it seems to me that winning the battle inside of that organization is really important right now. And one of the things that I've noticed is that if you get involved in a local chapter of the DSA, you will instantly be shuttled into one of these areas of act activism and organization. Um, in a sense, that's important. You sort of, uh, build your chops as a radical. You, you puts you in proximity to other radicals, but there's a downside to that as well, which is to say that it's sort of, um, precludes innovation and it kind of just inserts you into the existing uh, not so successful left uh, kind of uh, posture uh, that we've we've been using for the, the last several decades. So w- you're talking about a real central class relations of production orientation. Give, give some of these folks uh, and myself as well some advice on how to move forward with the knowledge that you've laid out. So
0: I think um, two things are really important to keep in mind. One is that right now, what what's happened with the DSA is is kind of um, – it's almost a game changer. It, at no point since the 1940s, may, maybe a little bit later, uh, has the left had a socialist, a self-proclaimed socialist organization that's this large with, with this kind of mass. It's really important because the biggest – Handicapped. The biggest problem on the left the last 40 years has been that it's been reduced to these tiny little groupules, these tiny, you know, what Hal Draper called micro sects, right. which are um, sequestered on campuses or in small little basements somewhere and have <laughs>
1: absolutely no connection to working people. So, so you, you don't want to buy my newspaper is what you're saying? Yeah, right? exactly.
0: Oh, OK. So they become essentially glorified study groups and – Secondly, because of that, they're mostly almost, not mostly, most, almost entirely comprised of middle-class people. Now, what's happening with the DSA is, first of all, the first problem, which is the problem of size, is suddenly swept away. And for the first time, you've got an organization with the mass and the resources to actually do something. Now, the second problem, which is the class background of the people in it, is still very much, I think, the same, which is it's it's still mostly a organization like other left organizations of people who are in or around universities. They're professionals. They're they're not really uh, I don't I mean, I don't know if they've done a poll, but this is just my sense that um, people who work for a wage are still going to be a, a small proportion of the total organization. So the biggest challenge for that organization right now is to embed itself in working people's lives at the workplace in their neighborhoods in their social lives so that that relationship between that the organization and working people becomes the lifeblood of the organization that i think adam is more is going to be what provides the solution to these worries that you have mm-hmm. because Right now, at this moment, I'm guessing the DSA doesn't quite know what to do with itself because it went from being a few thousand a year ago to over 20,000 now. And that's intimidating. It would
1: intimidate anybody. That's terrifying. My God. For, you know, for
0: 40 years, what have they been doing? Next to nothing. I mean, most people forgot they existed. And now suddenly, thanks to Bernie Sanders, they've exploded. So I, I think they're experimenting with different things, what to do. And they're kind of treading water right now. And so I wouldn't be too put off at this moment with whatever they're doing. I would start to worry if a year and a half, two years from now, they still haven't figured out a way of, in in some significant fashion, implanting themselves in working people's communities and workplaces. That's when it's going to be time to worry. And at that point, you should expect that, you know, you'll, there'll be a lot of, there'll be an out-migration from the organization. too. Uh, but once it starts doing serious work, a lot of people are going to say, yeah, not for me. But, you know, if you still end up with twelve to 14,000, that's a great, that's, that, that's 12,000 people who want to do working class organizing. That would be amazing. So I, I, I'm very optimistic. I, I really think that, Where this combination of the electoral victories, the moral kind of the, the high morale that we've seen, the sudden emergence of an organization, which whatever problems it has and how however open a tent it is, is putting socialism in the vocabulary of political people. Those are tremendously positive developments. And it's entirely possible that 2020 will be another important election for some kind of shift towards a anti-capitalist politics. These next three years, therefore, I think are chance for people like yourself, anybody else who's in DSA, to really take seriously what class organizing is, to go back and study it, to push the organization to engage in it and get the hell off the campuses
1: so that the left can actually have some place within the lives of working class people. That was really well said. I mean, I have a lot of faith in the militants and the leaders and the DSA. I just want to be clear. I worry about things because I care. As as your mother once told you, I'm sure uh, when you were a child, you know. Uh, so I have uh, a lot of faith in them, and I and I trust that they'll uh, read your journal and continue to converse and, and debate and uh, and learn through that process. So it's it's a good time to be alive. It is. It's very exciting. I got to tell you. I mean, it was very yeah. bleak when I first joined the left and, and you as a member of the left for several decades now. Uh, oh, you didn't. You weren't there in the the 90s. I look back in it and I'm, uh, I,
0: I, I get a cold sweat. <laughs> <laughs> it was so awful. Uh,
1: this is a great time. It is. What a time to be alive. Uh, Vivek Chipper, yeah. thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we, you know, we appreciate your expertise and, and you will undoubtedly guide us into this social democratic oh, century. God. No, beyond. that's a little grandiose. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I, just, I just I just hope we can do something that, that's useful. Uh, I, I, your 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 sense of uh, uh, humbleness is, uh, is, 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 <laughs> is good there, but you, you are undoubtedly providing a lot of leadership. And in uh, any way, uh, we appreciate that. So thanks for coming on the show. And I look forward to talking to you soon.
0: Thanks for having me, Adam. It is a pleasure.
1: And that's the show, everybody. Thanks again to Vivek Chibber. Thanks to my patrons. I appreciate all of you. If you haven't subscribed yet and you can, check me out at www.patreon.com slash pundits. You can donate $3, $5, or $8 a month If you have the means, I really appreciate it. Check me out on Twitter at Dead Pundits. Share the show, tell your friends, all that good stuff. We got a lot of really great stuff coming to you in the next few months. We got the Summer Anti Essentialism Series 2017. I'm stoked about it. I know you will be too. We've got great guests coming your way. So, in closing, I got a really great Twitter compliment from my man in Australia, Sean Watson. Uh, His Twitter handle is at Born Danson, and I stalked him a little bit because that's how we do on Twitter, I think, when you, you know, in between posting. And he's got a really great band. They're called Mount Defiance. They're based out of Melbourne, Australia. They've got a band camp page, and I think that you should check them out and support them. So there you go. If you say nice things about my show, I might, you know, I might pimp your band. On, on the program. So there you go. Compliment me and good shit will come your way. Uh, in any case, here is Mount Defiance. Their song is Shapes. I really dig it. I'll link to their Bandcamp page in the show notes. Until next week, enjoy the song. Dead Pundit, Out.
2: The rev was shot, And we were stuck for a place Ended up at a pub where it seemed like The bartenders hadn't seen sunlight today She's on a plane, I think it's still on the tarmac, try to drown that thought with a beer and a yarn as I place my pint right back down on the bar mat. Over the course of the night I know you saw me with Emma And I know that you mean well But it freaks me out When you say that you can see the two of us together a signal he's keen He approaches her with a drink that he bought It's the fourth time that I've seen him try this routine But now they're cutting shit trying to hide And I shouldn't